that Lady Chablis is my name. That's my legal name. So I think I'm one of the few people with the first name The. And if you're from the South, you can call me The. But the Lady Chablis is my uh, real name. The doll is sort of my fantasy character. It's my fun thing. When I'm dressed up for my shows to entertain, then I'm the doll. People would comment on the way that I looked as a female, and I liked that. It made me comfortable on the inside. And the one thing that I believe in with any human being is that if your soul and your spirit says it's the right thing, then it's the right thing. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our season two debut episode of Town Hall, a Black Queer Podcast. I'm your host, Peppermint, and I'm joined today by the one and only Bob the Drag Queen. Hello, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here with you all, and uh, we are ready to serve up some knowledge and some laughter. Now, today we're going to be bringing you the first half of a very special two-part episode in honor of Pride Month. Yes, baby, it is the month of Pride. It is June. Uh, enjoy your pride now because July begins shame month for all your debaucherous activities that you engaged in during pride. That is right. We are diving deep into the great glittering glamorous history of drag with special focus on our black queer icons who paved the way. So grab your sequins, honey, because we are about to travel all the way through time. Okay, so just to preface this before I do the monologue, uh, the setup of the show, I, you know, I was trying to figure out a way, how could I tell the story of William Dorsey Swan and make it interesting? And so what I basically did is I created some parallels between what William Dorsey Swan went through and parallels of my own life and my dealings with racism and my dealings with homophobia and how I put the story across is uh, I made the show, uh, it's basically an homage to A Christmas Carol, where you remember Scrooge went to the present, the past, and the future. So I'm doing that. I'm telling William Dorsey Swan's story. And in turn, William Dorsey Swan is showing me things and that I've dealt with in my past as well. So... In the monologue, when I mention a dream, that's what I mean by that. I was born in the year 1858, and I was the property of a woman named Miss Ann Murray. And yes, you heard me right. I said property, which means I was a slave. When was your birthday? Do you know when your birthday is? Well, yeah, uh, my birthday is April 26, 19... Well, if you know when your birthday is, you are one lucky person because I never knew when my birthday was. Why? Because I was a slave, and people felt that slaves didn't need to know when they were born. We were basically treated like animals. Well, no, let me take that back. Animals were actually treated better than we were. And as you can imagine, being a slave absolutely sucked. And yes, I know the word sucked is from your time, but this is a dream so I could say whatever I want. 
But yes, being a slave sucked. And as you can imagine, we were mentally messed up. Now, how could we not be? We, we had trauma. We definitely had to deal with PSD, PTSD. But think about it for a second. We could be killed at any time. We could be beaten for no reason. Hell, we could be sold because people didn't feel like looking at us anymore. Being a slave was like being in prison. Well, no, actually, I've been to prison. I know what prison is like. And when you go to prison, there's an end in sight. But I had to deal with this day after day after day after day. And every time I dealt with this, I would wonder to myself, what did I do that was so wrong? Why do people hate me so much? The only thing I have done is I just happened to be born a few shades darker than they were. But no matter how badly I was treated, no matter everything I had to go through, I never felt inferior to anybody once, ever. I bet I can't say the same thing about you. So William Dorsey Swan uh, is the first queer activist on record in the United States. Uh, William Dorsey Swan was a former slave who was known as the Queen of Drag in the late 1800s. And William Dorsey Swan was known for what he would do is he would throw drag balls. And so, and they were, and actually the funny thing is, is they were a lot like the balls. I don't know if you've seen the movies, Paris is burning or even that TV show pose where the, it's centered around the ball community. That's what William Dorsey Swan did as well. He, he threw, he threw uh, drag balls. Now these balls were held kind of like today in basically sort of secret and hidden locations. Sometimes it would be in a house or, uh, you know, a, a performance area, just somewhere that was hidden and not known to the general public. Uh, William had a lot to, so, so William's parties were open to, it didn't matter what color you are. Now, this was back in the late 1800s, post-Civil War, in Washington, D.C. Things were still very segregated, as you could imagine. But William's parties were open to everybody. It didn't matter whether you were black or white. You just had to be a man. And if you were a man, you were welcome. Some men would wear, you know, wear suits uh, and present as men. Other men would present as female and and they'd wear dresses. A lot of uh, William's friends, uh, a lot of William's black friends who came were, you know, uh, by day they were, you know, uh, laborers, farmers, uh, uh porters, uh, railroad porters, just, you know, basically your basic blue collar professional. That's what they did by day. But at night they would show up at the parties and they would, they would wear their drag and they would be absolutely fabulous and they would have a really good time. So, uh, word started to get out about William's parties. And so he started to, 
get harassed by police. Surprise, surprise, not much has changed. But he would he would get harassed by police. Um, and they would they would try to tail him. They would hide. They would put they basically put William under surveillance trying to catch William having the parties. And that did not stop William. William kept going and and the parties continued to get bigger and bigger. So I guess you all are wondering if William had to keep these parties secret, where was William finding his guests? Well, there's a place you all know what it is. You don't realize, you know, but you know, and that place is the YMCA. Uh, which is still around today. And from what I've heard about the YMCA, not much has changed there either. <laughs> but he, so he would go to the YMCA and they'd have secret codes and they'd leave secret notes. And those men who knew about the secret codes and knew about the secret notes knew, you know, if you know, you know. And they would go to these parties and they would have an amazing time. Now at these parties, they, you know, they would have food, they would have drinks, they would dance. And so the dance that they did was called the cakewalk. And the cakewalk uh, was a dance that originated during slavery. And what it was, it was the slaves would make fun of their uh, slave owners, the white people. And so they would make fun. Basically, it was like they would mimic the way that they would walk and uh, the airs that they would put on. And what they would do is the slave owners would have contests and the winner of the cakewalk would win a cake. And so that's why it was called the cakewalk. And the cakewalk is still around today, but we now call it voguing. That is where voguing originated from. So I do the cakewalk in my show. And so I've done a lot of research to get it right. And when you look at the cakewalk, the cakewalk is literally a strut and an attitude. And when you do it, your head, the head is held high and you are just working it. And so that part, I think, definitely translates to voguing because at the end of the day voguing is all about attitude it's all about attitude and it's all about strutting your stuff and also i don't know if you all are aware of this or not but uh rumor has it that william dorsey swan ha may have created the word drag queen it's still up in the air if you google it some people say it's uh, shakespeare uh, because, you know, during Shakespeare's time, men, all of the roles, whether it was a male or female, were played by men. And so one of the rumors is, is that, you know, uh, uh, the word drag came from dressed as girl. That's one of the rumors. But the other rumor is, is that the word drag queen was created by William Dorsey Swan because all of Will's, all of William's friends would call him the queen. And William was known as the queen. And William would wear floor-length gowns to the parties that would drag on the floor. Hence, drag queen. So, you know, there's 
There is no solid answer one way or the other. So I'm just choosing to say that William invented the word. <laughs> but um, so William, uh, William would have these parties. The parties became very well known. They became very successful between both black men and white men. During this time, William did get arrested quite a bit. Sometimes he would get arrested for uh, where just being in drag period because it was illegal. Uh, there was one time that will that uh, William went to jail uh, for stealing a library book. And so back in back in the late 1800s, libraries were segregated, black libraries and white libraries. William wanted a book didn't have it in the black library. William went to the white library. Uh, he wasn't allowed to borrow the book because he was black. So he borrowed it anyway, if you know what I mean. And, and he got arrested. He got arrested for that. And, and I believe spent a month in jail for that. There was another time, you know, William was throwing the parties and he wanted, William definitely wanted the parties. You know, he didn't want them to be low class or tacky. So there were some times that William was throwing the balls and needed extra silverware or plates. And um, so one time William stole, he was, he, during this whole time that he was throwing the balls, he had a day job where he was working for a rich white family. And so uh, he stole some plates and some silverware for one of the balls his timing was bad because he happened to take the silverware and the plates on a day where other people decided to steal stuff too. Uh, they all got turned in. They all went to jail. But uh, since William was the only black person out of all of the employees caught stealing, all the other employees were bailed out that same day, but, Will but William was stuck in jail. Uh, a month goes by his employers who truly really liked him uh, felt bad about him being in jail. And so they went to get him out. And so they went to the judge and they told the judge, you know, William's a great person. William is a great employee. William is intelligent. Because when you think about it for a second as well, William, you know, earlier went to jail for stealing a library book, which meant that he was a black person who could read, which back then there weren't a lot of black people who could read. So the fact that William could read definitely was a sign that William was an intelligent, very intelligent person, you know? So uh, his, his employers go to the judge and tell the judge, hey, so if you let William out of jail, William is a great employee. He's an intelligent guy. He's very smart. If you let, if you let William out of jail, uh, William will make sure that William stays out of trouble and we'll do this by giving William a lifetime job as a janitor. And so, um, you know, if you let him out, we'll make him our janitor and we'll keep an eye on him for the rest of his life. Uh, the judge did not, the judge was not having it. The judge said, no, that doesn't work for me. So his, uh, his former, so his employers taught him to write and ask 
for to appeal the the ruling and ask for a pardon. And so William did this. Now it's not known. So when you look at history of William, the history the little spotty. So it's not known for sure whether or not this pardon was granted. But the reason why this is important is because a few years later, uh, William Dorsey, William's, um, one of his balls was busted. A bunch of people went to jail. 13 people went to jail. Uh, it made all of the papers of, in the town at the time. It became like one of the, like this big sensational news story because they were caught dressed in drag. And so William ended up uh, going to jail because at his trial, all of the white men, there were both white men and black men who were busted at this ball. And all of the white men were told, if you come back and testify against William Dorsey Swan, we will let you go. Back in, back in that time, if you were caught, if you were, you know, as a gay man, if you were caught, your name would be in the newspaper, uh, the word would get out, and they would definitely have a list of names in the paper. And so you would be basically ruined. And so they told all these white men, if you testify against William Dorsey Swan, we're just going to expunge your record. We're not going to see anything. You'll be free to go. So all of these white men came back and testified against William Dorsey Swan. And because of their testimony, William Dorsey Swan was sentenced to 10 months in jail under suspicion of, quote, unquote, keeping a disorderly house, which was another name for running a brothel, which he wasn't doing that. Uh, so William goes to jail. He's sentenced to 10 months in jail. Of course, before he goes to jail, the judge goes on this homophobic tirade and and tells William that, that William's a freak and P all these people at the parties were freaks as well. William goes to jail for 10 months and uh, William, while William is in jail, remembers how to write and write an appeal and ask for that pardon. And so William wrote to President Grover Cleveland asking President Grover Cleveland for a pardon. And by doing this and by showing by doing this and, and this is basically a protest as well by doing this. This made William Dorsey Swan the first gay activist on record. Now, President Cleveland turned down the request, but the fact that William asked made William the first gay activist on record. And so William served his time. And I, and I actually, and you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm referring to William as he, him, but... I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what the pronouns, I guess they didn't worry about pronouns back in the 1800s. And I feel a little bad. So, you know, I will switch. So she got out of jail and uh, she, but she got out of jail. Once she got out of jail, she was tired of all of the fighting. She was tired of all of the, the harassment that she received before going to jail and so she decided to retire. Well, sorta. She got her brothers to run the parties for her. 
she stayed on as what we would call a consultant. So her brothers would throw the parties. She would show up to make sure that they were fabulous and they looked good. She would make dresses for all her friends. And she continued to attend the parties and enjoy the parties until she died. Now there's discrepancy with her, the date of her death. There are some postings that say she died in 1925. There are other postings that say that she died in 1954. So we have no, we have no definitive date of when she died. So William Dorsey Swan did have a boyfriend. And, and the thing, and the reason why this is important was before the boyfriend, um, uh, his, his last name was Lafayette. Uh, before the boyfriend was dating William, the boyfriend was in another relationship. And this relationship, the reason why it's important, the, the couple, it was Felix was one of the guys. Pierce was another one of the guys. And the reason why this is important is because they were out. They were out and a couple when they were slaves when slavery ended, they remained a couple and until I get it eventually ended because he had ended up dating William. But the point is they were out and they were out on record. And so they were like the first black uh, queer couple to be out and recorded. One of the things that really piqued my interest is the fact that you mentioned William Dorsey Swan to people. They have no idea who she is. And when you think about it, it's Pride Month. And one of the reasons why we have Pride is because of William Dorsey Swan, period. You know, the first queer activist in America. People started protesting after her. And it just, I just find it sad that we know nothing. When you go and you Google William Dorsey Swan and you try to research, it's the same two or three articles basically that are regurgitated over and over and over again. And I think it's a damn shame that we don't know more. And I hate to go there, but I suspect that if William was a different color, we would absolutely know more. So I make it my mission to get the word out there. You know, I'm doing this show. I'm also uh turning this in i'm in the process of turning this into a documentary as well to take the spread the word even further because now that i'm in i'm in <laughs> so i i i, I it, it's really my mission to get the word out there about william dorsey swan the name of the show is called the real black swan confessions of america's first black drag queen and it is in new york city as part of the queerly festival uh my show dates are are uh june 18th june 19th and june 24th and you can it's uh, at, at I, at crane theater and you can look it up online at frigidfest.org that was Les Kirkendall Barrett, writer, director, and actor of The Real Black Swan, Confessions of America's First Black Drag Queen. William Dorsey Swan was truly a trailblazer in the world of drag, from formerly enslaved to becoming the first known person to identify as the queen of drag. Can you imagine the audacity 
I mean, honestly. <laughs> Imagine going from being like, I mean, literally, and it's a, a formerly enslaved person and you are now have coined the phrase drag queen that now we're using on television, film, radio, books. It's really remarkable. Swan hosted some of the most fabulous drag balls in the 1800s, Washington, D.C. And mind you, this was at a time when it was absolutely illegal to be openly queer. But Swan didn't let that stop him from throwing the most glamorous parties this side of the Mississippi. That's how you pronounce it when you're from the South, Miss Mississippi. Swan's infamous balls were a refuge for Black and queer folks, a place to express their true selves without fear of persecution. And speaking of balls, we can't forget the iconic Crystal LaBeja of the House of LaBeja. Crystal, where are you going? This is not the time to show temperament. Get back here and stay with the other finalists. Oh, well, you've got to expect more. Do you think she deserved it? You know she didn't deserve it. All of them, the judges knew it too. But she was terrible at her explanation for why she wanted the money to put it in the bank. (laughs) She's not getting any money because Sabrina is not going to pay her. They're good friends. It's only publicity and it's bad publicity. The hall and all the rest, because I'm declared as one of the uglier people of the world. She better get the hell back to Philadelphia, because she's one of the worst. Where's Miss Sabrina? Because I'll sue the bitch. Did you sign the release? No, I didn't sign any release. And if she releases any bitch on me, I will sue the fool. She won't make money off of my name, darling. She can make it off of Harlow and all the rest of the fools that will flock to her. But not Crystal, darling. Anybody but her. You can take all the pictures you want of me, but I better not see them on the street because it's over. Get a picture with me and Harlow and see which is more beautiful, darling. Monique told me not to come. That's why Monique is not here in dress because Monique, darling, Monique was not here as a friend of yours. She's a friend of mine, darling. Monique, would you tell her why you didn't come? Because she knew it's Victor Harlow. She said, Crystal, darling, don't go. Because you're not going to get it. And that's why all the true beauties didn't come. It's in bad taste and you're showing your colors and you I am. I am doing it bad, but I got an, I have a right to show my color, darling. I am beautiful and I know I'm beautiful. Taking the wrong way. Shit, she looked bad. And no way of what you say can do about it. Get Harlow's outfit. Don't bother her. Don't bother her. It's not Harlow's fault. It's not her fault. Harlow has nothing. She can't help it. Because you're beautiful and you're young. You deserve to have the best in life. But you didn't deserve. Miss I, I don't say she's not beautiful, but she wasn't looking beautiful tonight. She doesn't equal me. Look at her makeup. It's terrible. That was the legendary Crystal LaBeja. Crystal LaBeja. <laughs> not only was she a fierce queen, Her work in the ballroom scene during the 60s was groundbreaking. Crystal grew tired of New York City's racist drag pageant system that discriminated against black and brown performers. So Crystal, along with a fellow queen named Lottie LaBeja, founded the Royal House of LaBeja and created a space where black and brown queens could showcase their talent and slay the competition. And slay they did. These balls were all about fierce competition, fierce fashion, and fierce shade. Crystal LaBeja was known for her unapologetic honesty, and she could read you down beneath the ground. 
So, you know, the ballroom scene um, was created for black and brown people when they felt like they couldn't get a leg up in the drag scene, particularly in the pageant system. Um, It just felt like no matter how hard you tried, no matter what you did, no matter how beautiful you were, no matter how great your gown was, you just could not get a leg up on these white queens. So instead... Crystal said, well, let's make a space for ourselves. If they're not going to celebrate us, we will celebrate ourselves and celebrate she did. And I believe this was the truly the, the defining moment where a lot of black and brown people started finding their success in nightlife. Oh, that's right. You know, the House of Abasia set the standard for what a drag house could be. And they were like a family supporting and uplifting one another in a world that often tried to bring them down. And the ballroom scene became a space of celebration creativity, and of course, legendary Vogue battles. And Vogue, they did. The House of Asia became a force to be reckoned with in the ballroom community. These queens were serving up on the runway, voguing like there was no tomorrow and snatching trophies left and right. It was like a fierce drag Olympics and Crystal was the queen of the game. Crystal's leadership and vision paved the way for the entire house system that we know today. She inspired a wave of other houses to rise, creating a support network for LGBTQ plus individuals who face marginalization in society. It was a family that nurtured talent, encouraged growth, and celebrated uniqueness in each member. And Crystal LaBeija's influence wasn't limited to her house. She made her mark in the iconic and legendary documentary, The Queen, in 1968, where she fearlessly spoke out against the discrimination faced by black and brown performers. And she let the world know that queens like her were fierce, fabulous, and deserving of recognition. She was a true queen, baby. Crystal LaBeija's legacy continues to inspire drag performers and LGBTQ plus communities worldwide. Her determination, strength, and love for her community have become the building blocks of the drag ballroom culture we know and adore. Now, let's not forget that drag is so much more than just fashion and makeup. It's about performance and expression and reclaiming power. And Crystal LaBeija's influence on drag history cannot be overstated. You've definitely said a quote or two of hers in your life. She truly left her legacy on the runway. The Lady Chablis is my name. That's my legal name. So I think I'm one of the few people with the first name, The. And if you're from the South, you can call me The. But the Lady Chablis is my uh, real name. The doll is sort of my fantasy character. It's my fun thing. When I'm dressed up for my shows to entertain, then I'm the doll. People would comment on the way that I looked as a female, and I like that. It made me comfortable on the inside. And the one thing that I believe in with any human being is that if your soul and your spirit says it's the right thing, then it's the right thing. Can we talk about what we just heard? That was a The Lady Chablis. She was like a walking hurricane. I'm talking big hair, bold personality, and a charm that could bring the house down. Oh, absolutely. The Lady Chablis was the epitome of Southern charm with a side of sass. And she didn't just walk into a room, she sashayed in, demanding attention with every step and making the crowd beg for more. And that wardrobe, huh? She had the most sparkling sequin gowns that could blind you from a mile away. 
darling. Now, let's not limit the lady she bleed to the stage. She had the wit and charm of a seasoned queen, and she put her talents to work. The book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil spilled the tea on her life and experiences. It was a major bestseller. The lady she bleed showed the world that drag queens aren't just fabulous performers, but we are also talented storytellers. Uh, lady Chablis, legendary. And let's not forget her iconic role in the film adaptation of the book. She played herself, giving us a taste and just a taste of her larger-than-life personality and proving that drag queens can slay any medium from stage to Hollywood. She, tr- she truly, truly left her mark. The Lady Chablis was an inspiration to all of us. She embraced her truth, lived unapologetically, and showed the world that being yourself is the ultimate form of beauty. We love and miss her, but her legacy lives on. Oh, much love to the Lady Chablis. The Lady Chablis. Excuse me. I didn't get into it right away. I was like a butch makeup queen working at Reading Village. And then I started doing little different drag. And I started wearing little high heel shoes, you know. And I started putting on stockings. And I started becoming a drag queen. I was one of the Stonewall girls. One of the first girls to ever come in drags to the Stonewall. 1969, when the Stonewall riot started, that's when I started my little rioting. Now, that was the unstoppable force, Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson was a revolution. She was a gender non-conforming performer and an activist during the 1960s. An instigator of the Stonewall riots, this fierce black queen fought tooth and nail for our rights. Marsha P. Johnson was at the forefront of the LGTB plus rights movement and her resilience and bravery during the Stonewall riots were instrumental in sparking the fight for equality. There's actually been some online debate about um, Marsha P. Johnson and her identity um, because in some places she's often referred to as a trans woman, but there's also language that she never used for herself. She often, um, she used she her pronouns she often called herself gay. She used the term transvestite quite quite um, quite frequently. Um, but what we do know for sure is that she was fierce and that she was an amazing trailblazer. For those listeners who are not familiar, the Stonewall Rebellion was a series of spontaneous demonstrations that took place in June 1969 in New York City. The Stonewall Inn was a popular gathering place for LGBTQ community, and it was raided by the police. Tired of being mistreated and marginalized, the community rose up and fought back. It was a watershed moment, uh, and Marsha P. Johnson was at the forefront of it all. And that night was a turning point. Marsha, along with other activists, drag queens, lesbians, and countless others, had had enough of the constant harassment and discrimination. So when the police came to raid the Stonewall Inn, the bar patrons fought back, refusing to be silenced any longer. Now, it was a true act of resistance and empowerment. The Stonewall riots ignited a fire within the LGBTQ plus community, um, leading the birth of the modern gay rights movement. Marsha and the rest of the activists' bravery and resilience inspired countless others. Absolutely. Marsha P. Johnson was a true activist, and her legacy continues to inspire us all. She co-founded, along with Sylvia Rivera, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, also known as STAR, and fought tirelessly for the rights of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. And let's not forget her iconic fashion sense. 
Marsha was known for her fabulous ensembles, often rocking vibrant colors and flowers in her hair, and she truly understood the power of drag as a form of protest and expression. And let's not forget about her iconic fashion sense. Marsha was known for her fabulous ensembles, honey, often rocking vibrant colors and flowers in her hair. She truly understood the power of drag as a form of protest and expression. That she did. Marsha P. Johnson and the Stonewall Rebellion marked a turning point in queer history, inspiring a movement that we would continue to build upon today. And their struggle and resilience paved the way for the rights and freedoms that we enjoy to this very day. It's really important that we also acknowledge places like uh, the Black Cat Tavern and also um, the Compton, uh, Compton's Inn in San Francisco. These were not in New York, but these were other uh, similar protests turned into rebellions that happened in the United States, in San Francisco, and in Los Angeles that, um, that were also just a sign of the times that we were so really oppressed and abused unilaterally in our country. Uh, mostly at the hands of law enforcement that, you know, it didn't take much to really the straw to break the camel's back and for all of these sort of rebellions and demonstrations and protests to start popping up all over the country. Similarly to how they did in 2020 when, you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, that was not the first uh, unarmed Black man to be killed by the police. It certainly wasn't the last. And it wasn't the only one that we were marching for. So we saw, we saw demonstrations popping up in, all over the country. And that was kind of the same tone I, from what I hear from historians uh, that, that, it, that we were feeling in the 60s, in 68 and 69 in the United States when it comes to queer people being um, sort of put upon and wanting to fight for our own rights. With regards to Stonewall and Marsha P. Johnson, uh, you know, these are two really, really important legacies, and including Sylvia Rivera. Uh, these are important legacies and, and important contexts, and I want to make sure that people know that the, the tone of what was happening, you know, uh, we were in a, in a time where being gay or being queer or being trans or nonconforming or any of these things was still something that was punishable by law, that was fire, fireable at your job, so, certainly something that was worthy of that, that could have gotten you ostracized from your community and your family. Uh, and many of the people who were at the forefront of the liberation movement, at the marches, at the demonstrations, were the people who had already lost their jobs, people who had already been ostracized from their families and their homes. Uh, there were certainly lots of young, maybe even closeted queer people who had access to money and connections with their family who didn't engage with what was going on on the street. These were people that thought it was important to confirm and, and assimilate and just don't rock the boat. But the people who had no choice but to rock the boat because they'd already been kicked out of the boat were the people on the street, the transvestites, people that you might call drag queens and also trans sex workers, people who had already lost access to housing and employment, people who were, had already had a police record and had already been scooped up by the police and harassed by the police many times. It was this police harassment that was oftentimes with a tinge of obviously sexism and homophobia, transphobia, and racism that really started the rebellion that we call the modern gay rights liberation movement. 
at Stonewall. It wasn't just because a bunch of gay white guys were dancing in the bar. It was really because drag queens and trans people were being harassed for just walking the street. You could arrest them for sex work, even if they weren't engaging in sex work, even though there were certainly some who were uh, at that time. And that was what, from what I'm hearing from people who are actually on the ground then, there's a really wonderful uh, non-Black uh, queer historian in New York who worked at the Stonewall and still does to this day, named, well, just actually just retired, named Teresa Koya, who was there um, and was one of the last known living people who was actually there at Stonewall, who, who we know about, um, who talked about it was really the Black and Brown folks who were either viewed as or were treated as or actually were sex, work, sex workers and street girls who were be who were really at um sorely at the at the receiving end of a lot of the police abuse that was happening back then and that was really similar to what was happening in in San Francisco at Compton Inn and also in Los Angeles at the Black Hat Tavern among other places um and so i think that context is really important to add in since we're talking about blackness and queerness we owe so much to these black queer icons who fearlessly challenged societal norms and fought for our community's visibility and acceptance. We truly do. And that wraps up the first episode of our journey through drag history. We hope you all enjoyed our little trip down memory lane. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this wild ride. Now, remember, community, it's important to honor our past as we continue to shape the future. So stay fierce, stay fabulous, and keep celebrating the magic of black queer excellence. And that's the wrap for today. Thank you all for listening to Town Hall, a Black Queer podcast with Bob the Drag Queen and Peppermint. Join us June 28th for the second half of this very special two-part episode on drag history in honor of Pride Month. Special thanks to our production team, executive producer Tracy Marquez, senior producer Charlene Westbrook, producer Corey Nixon, and post-producer Amelia Rittuller, and music by Lefemme Bear. <laughs>